You're listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Katie Schwab, Rose Crest, Jamie Ansorge. Good afternoon. This is Katie Schwab with Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies New York Practice Group, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Rose Crist, Stuart Shorenstein, and Jamie Ansorge. We're here today to present a special outside the Beltway edition of the Beltway Briefing, focusing on the results of the midterm races for New York governor, as well as New York's congressional candidates and our U.S. senator and number of down-ballot seats in the state legislature. Our Washington colleagues will be hosting a parallel discussion to dissect the results of the 2022 midterm elections nationwide later in the week. So at this moment, I'd like to turn the discussion to Jamie, who will give a bit of an overview of how what we do know about the federal midterm elections, how that looks from the perspective of New York politics. Thanks, Katie. And hi, everybody. Jamie Ansorge with the New York team. Just a quick overview of of what happened federally and then drilling down into New York is that we have an incumbent president, President Joe Biden, who's been facing economic headwinds and now a midterm election that's historically been bad for almost every incumbent president two years after their first election. In fact, dating back to 1934, incumbent presidents have seen an average of 24 lost House seats and four federal uh, lost federal Senate seats. And it appears Joe Biden may see less of a loss than that. So while definitely there is a red wave that has swept the country and parts of New York, it appears it was more of a ripple than a tsunami. So there are a number of races that are still too close to call federally, but appear it appears Democrats have a decent chance to maintain at least a tie in the Senate and that a Republican majority in the House, if they do achieve that, will be far slimmer than once expected. But that majority will be uh, due in large part to redistricting that happened here in New York State, where Republicans saw large gains across the board and some very close races in historically Democratic strongholds. But for that, I'll pass it to my colleague, Stuart Shorenstein. Thank you, uh, Jamie. And uh, in New York, um, uh, to the extent there has been a red wave, it's a wave that crashed on the uh, beaches of Long Island and led to a sweep Uh, by the Republicans of all the congressional seats on Long Island. And that was, um, uh, is having major impact uh, nationally. Ironically, Lee Zeldin lost the race for governor, but may have uh, contributed to the the turning of uh, majority power in Washington over to to his party, the Republicans. So a little bit of irony there, equal amount of irony, in terms of uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, who is the chair of the uh, of the DCCC, and who has led uh, very successfully a uh, campaign across the country uh, that has limited, or appears to have limited, uh, the size of the Republican majority that was expected, uh, but wound up losing his own seat in the Mid Hudson Valley. For the results of New York. Um, the race was uh, certainly closer uh, than uh, was initially expected. And uh, Governor Kathy Hochul broke the glass ceiling 
uh, became the first elected female governor of New York State, and uh, and Anthony Delgado, the first Latino uh, uh, African American elected. Well, I guess he wasn't the first one elected as um, as lieutenant governor because we had David Patterson, but he um, he gave up his seat in Congress uh, to do that. And they won a much closer race than was anticipated, about 53 to 47. Governor Hochul came in for a lot of criticism about her campaign. And was it grassroots enough? Was it... Um, too dependent on commercials and raising large amounts of money. But in the end, she proved victorious. And what is interesting is that her margin of victory for all the criticism that she received, which I think was not uh, necessarily uh, correct, her margin of victory wasn't so different than the margin of victory by Chuck Schumer or by Letitia James as attorney general, or by uh, Tom DiNapoli, controller. None of those had real races. Uh, most people couldn't even name their opponents, and there was no advertising by their opponents in those races. Uh, but they all were in similar margins of 55 or 53, and, and uh, their margins were down substantially from uh, the, uh, the margins uh, four years ago, where each one was somewhere around 65 to 70% winning. So that is reflective of a kind of red wave that didn't get the Republicans over the top. Uh, so when you woke up this morning, uh, you didn't face a tsunami, as Jamie said, um, but you have to worry about the next storm and are you prepared for it? This is not just left to New York. When you look at uh, Phil Murphy two years ago, uh, he won by about two points. When you look at Governor Lamont in Connecticut, when you look at J.B. Pritzker in Illinois, their margins were very similar to Kathy Hochul's. So this may be a part of the division of the country that is fairly equally divided at this point, which is why you have a, a Senate that may well turn out to be 50-50 again. Turning to the New York state races, the results were very, very interesting. Um, lots of changes. Uh, the Democrats in the state Senate went into this election with a supermajority of 43 seats in the state Senate. They need to have 42 in order to have the supermajority. The results are not totally final, but it appears that they will fall short of that number by one or two, and we can discuss the implications of that later on. But the implications are significant. In the assembly, a bastion of, um, of power for uh, for the Democrats for the last um, 40 years, there were a number of incumbents who lost. And while they will, the Democrats went in with 107 seats out of 150, uh, they will come out with at least 100 and, and or a little bit over 100 and maintain their supermajority in the assembly. 
but uh, you had uh, Steve Simberwitz, the chair of the housing committee, Steve Engelbright, the chair of the environmental committee, uh, longtime uh, assembly uh, members, uh, Stephanie Pfeffer Amato and Peter Abadi, all losing. And uh, this was a, um, a surprise to, to them, of course, but these are powerful chairmen of committees and they went down. The issues played a large part in this. Um, when you look at the race as a whole, uh, this was less a race of personality than of issues. People didn't like Zeldin on one side or Hochul on the other, but they didn't hate them the way they hated Trump and Hillary Clinton. This was more issues driven with crime and pocketbook versus uh, personal freedoms, reproductive rights, um, gun control, and um, the kinds of issues that were working for the governor until she needed to pivot at the end to address uh, inflation and, um, and, and personal safety. The, the status in New York, and I turn it over to, to uh, Rose and Katie. I would say, why don't we take a look at some of those issues that seem to really influence the race? You know, we saw that the media would sensational way cover issues like crime, like reproductive rights. Um, those were what people presumed would be the things that really would drive turnout and drive participation in the election. And from week to week, we saw the polling data fluctuate pretty extremely, more than, than in many races in the past. And um, in the end, it seemed that the turnout is what really made the difference and what really preserved the Democratic majority, both in the legislature and, and in the statewide races here in New York. And Rose, how do, you, how do you think that really did play out on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I think that it was, look, it's some of these issues peaked early, right? I think when we talk about abortion rights, like if we had seen this election take place, earlier, just a few months, a month or so earlier, right? I think that would have played more front and center for Hochul. I think that the issue that was front and center throughout the duration of the campaign and that I motivated a, a lot of voters was crime, right? And I think that's in large part to the incredible media coverage of every instance of crime that we've seen in New York and also the media's uh, driving home this idea that crime is on the rise as a result of bail reform and that, you know, Governor Hochul somehow could have single-handedly addressed those issues. I mean, I was just reading the post the other day. It was a two-page spread about a horrible story about a domestic abuse survivor whose assaulter came back and, and unfortunately she was killed and the question, and he was let out under the bail reform bills. And so it, they painted it under the election coverage, right? It was under the headline election coverage was this really sensational story. And I I think that that piece of the narrative resonated throughout. And I'm, I think that the governor didn't spend a ton of time, you know, sort of like addressing each of these issues head on, these instances head on. And, and in the end, it worked out for her. But I do think that it was Zeldin gained a lot of momentum from folks who maybe otherwise vote as more moderate or even conservative Democrats who said, look, I may not agree with every aspect of Zeldin's, you know, Trump-aligned, socially conservative platform. But when it comes to issues of crime and how safe I feel in my neighborhood, I'm going to vote in this way. And I, I think that it really it benefited him. It's part of what made the race feel mm -hmm. so tight and, and actually be so tight. 
I think Zeldin was a rather canny politician when he tried to align himself also with Eric Adams, right? And while the mayor's political fortunes may not be extremely strong at this particular moment, his message of fighting crime and standing up for victims and so on is certainly a strong one. And I thought that was um, an interesting move by the Zeldin campaign at that time. I I think Rose is absolutely right. You know, if you're ever sick or in the hospital, nothing else really matters than your than your health at that moment. And here, Delvin successfully appealed through a relentless and exhaustive advertising campaign with appeals to personal safety and economic security. And that was uh, basically um, overshadowing personal freedoms uh, at, at the moment. But also, if you look at the race four years ago, nearly all the uh, statewide Democrats won pretty close to what their margin of um, of registration was. And here, the victories were significantly lower across the board. And I think that portends for Democrats to address issues that are of, um, of, of very broad concern. No, it appears that there were four seats flipped in New York City, right? Four legislative seats flipped to Republican from Democrat. And that's that's really significant. I don't remember that happening at any time in my recent past. So um, that tells you that those messages are resonating and outside of Manhattan, especially. So that's a message that the Democrats should take to heart. They need to be more sensitive. And Katie, the, the congressional delegation is now split 15 Democrats and 11 Republicans. Mm-hmm. That is, those are numbers we haven't seen in a long, 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 long right. time. No, I don't think anyone thought that the, you know, New York would be contributing to that red ripple or, you know, it wasn't a tsunami, but New York was really playing its part in that. And I don't think anyone envisioned that would happen. Yeah. And look, the reality is that Republican voters are more motivated than Democratic voters this cycle. I mean, to Rose's point, the pro-choice issues, I think, were kind of peaked earlier in the year. And meanwhile, the kind of inflation and crime issues are peaking right now. And a lot of it is just timing. And, you know, unlike Phil Murphy, who almost was silently defeated because there were there was kind of no alarm rung and he won by two and a half points. You know, I will give one shout out to polling, which has been kind of bashed recently, that those polls that showed the race tightening, I'd say about 10 to 14 days over the election is what kind of woke up an otherwise very, very sleepy Democratic electorate in New York State. And if the election were two weeks ago, it might have been far worse. And that, you know, luckily, the kind of establishment and the unions and the activists, I mean, I, I was out there handing out lit. I didn't think I would have to do that for the governor this year. But, you know, it was all hands on deck, five alarm fire to, to, to win this thing. And, you know, it turned out the polls were fairly accurate. The final polls kind of had, you know, five to eight points separating the candidates. And that's, it actually is, is on the closer end of that. Everyone was saying, why are they bringing in the big guns of Obama and, uh, and, and Clinton and, uh, and, and Biden into uh, New York because they were needed? Yeah. I, and I think it's, you know, it's telling like Mark Levine, we saw the Manhattan Borough president launched a whole campaign, you know, wake up Dems. And I think that that is like a perfect tagline. And as everyone's doing their postmortem, I can't help but notice, especially in progressive circles and, and 
you know, in fairness, these folks have been looking for opportunities to do this, right? But they're slamming the state Democratic Party. They're slamming Jay Jacobs. They're slamming the Brooklyn Democratic Party, right, for being either complacent or in the case of the Brooklyn Democratic Party, you know, distracted by interpoliticking, right, and not investing resources aggressively enough, early enough to be able to make this an easier win for what should be, right, this historic success for the first woman governor elected to the state of New York, someone who is by and large liked, right? As Stewart said, it's not an issue of personality, right, or competency. And so um, I think that it, Jamie, you're right, that just there were not enough there wasn't enough attention early on. And thankfully, the alarm bells were wrong as we got closer right. and closer, because uh, otherwise, I don't think we would have seen the the results that we did. And it meant that people who maybe would have sat back on this, people from the progressive left, young people, young voters, right, they were nervous about a Zeldin win. And I think it turned out a population of people who maybe were not uniquely motivated by Hochul, but who were particularly concerned about what a Zeldin win might mean for New York State. And it'll be interesting to see if this will prove to be a unifying force for the Democrats or if they'll go right back to squabbling again and, you know, failing to find common ground. And because I think there's been the, you know, with the two to one registration advantage in the state, Democrats have had power for so long, but they've been their own worst enemy in many ways in terms of not being able to um, resolve a lot of internal issues. But now having realized that there's an enemy out there, a shared enemy, they'll learn to work together a little more effectively going forward. I mean, that's that's the big question, right? You know, Governor Hochul now has a mandate, her first mandate. It's her first time she's been elected, but a mandate for what? You know, we now that it was such a kind of close race, you know, does she begin to govern more as the kind of moderate, more leaning upstate Democrat where she kind of began her career. You know, more recently, she she had kind of slanted more to the left to make inroads at downstate progressives. But now that there was that close margin and there is a break in the supermajority in the state Senate, does she become more moderate? Or do the now progressive voices in the Senate Democratic Caucus, which has now lost some of its more moderate voices, you know, keep continue to move left. I mean, I think that's the big dynamic we're going to see play out in the governor's uh, budget and in the upcoming legislative session. I think that the governor is poised to uh, take this victory and to exercise the power that goes with it. And I think she will, now that she has been elected instead of uh, basically um, elevated, it's a different course for her. And now that the supermajority is gone, she can pursue her own agenda and do it through an executive orders, executive agency. She can do it through her budget, uh, where the governor has a lot of leverage when it comes to uh, uh, budget matters. Uh, I think you'll see her being uh, very much her own person and charting a course that uh, she believes will be best for New York and not just following um, the guide of uh, either progressives or conservative Democrats. She's going to try and do things to rebuild the economy and, and to assure public safety for, for the citizens. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a perfect transition to the look ahead, right? I mean, so now we see the what we we more or less know, right? It was the newly constituted state assembly and state senate, right? And I think 
What will be interesting to see is that as the governor prepares for her state of the state address and the legislature prepares for their response to the budget, what are going to be the hot issues for this session? What are going to be the things that they're focused on? And how does this new makeup affect that? I mean, there was I've had a lot of conversations with folks who wonder whether the fact that we have new Republican members of the state legislature, whether that means we're going to see a more tempered or moderate um, body out of Albany, right? Or it's the fact that we've lost some of our more moderate Democrats mean that there's less balance on the Democratic side and that the people who are the more progressive left are going to have more power and a bigger outside voice than ever, outsized voice than ever. And so I think this will be one of the really interesting things to watch and kind of a tricky and delicate balancing act for Stuart Cousins and the Hasties to manage, not to mention the governor as bills arrive on her desk and she has to decide how to act on them. Uh, Jamie or Stuart, if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, look, I think the state of the state will be um, a telltale state of the state this year. I think it will lay out the, the agenda that she wants to follow. I think the um, progressives in the party uh, went all out to try to uh, assure a victory and went too far. And they're blaming the courts, but not looking in the mirror and seeing why we're in this position, which may well affect control of the House in, in Washington. Consequences could be actually pretty dire because of uh, the redistricting process and what a disaster it was. Yeah, and, you know, I will just point out that those three kind of Hudson Valley seats, the uh, now Pat Ryan was the Democrat who managed to kind of squeak out a victory. But then you have Molinaro and Riley, I believe it is, right? And those are going to be three of the most hotly contested congressional races in the country two years from now. Mm -hmm. And so just seeing how that plays out within the delegation and within our political conversation, especially around crime and the economy will be very interesting. And, you know, just talking about the state of the state, you know, it sounded like the governor's, you know, been planning more and more to focus on housing issues, maybe kind of trying to appease more of the kind of downstate left issues. It'll be interesting to see whether she elevates economic and public safety issues in her state of the state, because I think that will be a sign that she heard kind of loud and clear, you know, kind of the feelings, especially of suburban communities on Long Island, Westchester, and, and even in Hudson Valley. It'll be a very, very difficult balancing act for her because she has been, um, you know, she certainly in, in terms of campaigning, she had a tremendous amount of support from the real estate community, from big developers. And yet it was a not well kept secret at all that those are folks who certainly hedged their bets in the campaign giving area. And then at the same time, at the very end of the day, I think when push came to shove, it was a lot of the progressive groups that turned out and turned out the vote and were really there at the end. So uh, they're publicly acknowledging their role in this right now. And I think that many of them believe that they were really a deciding factor in ensuring the election of the governor. So she'll have a lot of people who feel that she's somehow indebted to them. And I think that's going to be tough for her to be able to navigate those, those competing demands. It'll be especially in areas like housing, where the policy recommendations are just so vastly different among those different stakeholders. Yeah, and I think uh, we'll also see whether or not there's another um, 
effort to uh, do further bail reform in the budget when she uh, presents it as she did uh, uh, last year, and um, it may not have gone far enough. So uh, we'll see what she does with that, but that will be a telltale sign. Another interesting factor, I think, was the role of, um, of outside spending by outside groups. I think there was an article last week about Ronald Lauder and the amount of money that he had spent. And I, I thought that was an interesting factor and seemed to be something that mobilized a lot of voters or certainly informed a lot of voters at the end of the election cycle. And do you see that as something that would be transforming perhaps the upcoming city council races that will be happening just this next year? That Times article was so interesting because it talked about how sort of like unusual it was that Lauder had dumped so much money into a midterm election on a gubernatorial race, right? And so it would be even more unusual for us to see spending at even near that level on a city council race. But I think that it is, again, it's indicative of the important role that New York plays as sort of a bellwether in the in the country, right? And so this is part of why the governor's race is so important. If it had gone Republican, I think it would have really been an indication about how much things had shifted. And I, you know, I think if you just look historically about the amount of outside spending that's going into these elections, it's grown, you know, nearly doubled election over election, and there's like sort of no end in sight. And then you start to get now, perhaps I'm going a bit down the rabbit hole, right? But then you start to get into things like Elon Musk owning Twitter, right? And what does it mean when people who are extremely politically active and opinionated and um, partisan are controlling the modern forms of media, right? Um, and so it's, I think that we'll continue to see bigger and bigger role played by forces outside of campaigns control. And sometimes that'll benefit the candidates. Sometimes I think that it, it may backfire on them. So, um, anyway, Jamie, I know you do sort of like a lot of following of all of these kinds of things. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the the campaign finance structure is so different at each of these levels. And, you know, you see that in how the campaigns organize themselves, you know, at the federal and even more so at the statewide level, the emphasis is on big checks and relationships mm-hmm. with folks that could go out and spend do IEs for you, like obviously real estate and, and unions in particular. You know, on the inverse, our city has actually done a lot to counteract that through the matching funds program and has really incentivized uh, council candidates to build large grassroots spaces of supporters who give small dollars and then are activated. And I think it's led to a much more kind of robust, thriving engagement at the candidate level here in New York City versus for the statewide races and, and even for the congressional races. And I, I do think, you know, the, the governor was an incredible fundraising juggernaut, but we can't neglect our state party and our grassroots organizing and our small dollar donors uh, moving forward. And I think that the governor will realize that and hopefully we'll, we'll rebuild the, the state party here a little bit moving forward. Now, th- this was also a campaign waged largely over the air, fueled by all this money. Uh, which is, um, you know, to the extent that they don't collaborate, it's legal. Of course, everyone kind of collaborates, I believe, but uh, that's harder to prove. Uh, but the, the Democrats nationally and in New York, you don't see the big rallies that you see on the Republican side. And I just wonder if that doesn't generate some degree of enthusiasm on the ground. 
that may be lacking and uh, something to that I ponder, but I don't have an answer for. Yeah. I mean, I think that gets to the point I was trying to make earlier that a lot of the motivation for some folks to turn out is about fear of the alternative and not about motivation for the mm-hmm. candidate themselves. And I think what we see with some, you know, like specialized populations, special demographics, right? We do see bigger turnout. So I know I helped to organize the LGBTQ for Hopeful rally, right? And we, so that was a pretty sizable turnout of folks who came out to Stonewall Inn to rally around Hochul and Delgado and push people out to the polls. I, I think that you see some of that, but I think you're right, Stuart, that just like the general democratic population isn't motivated to show, to show out the way we saw Zeldin supporters show up in Long Island and even in some of the places upstate. Yeah, and, and just on that point, you know, one kind of bellwether race was uh, this newly created state Senate seat in kind of Sunset Park, Brooklyn, SD-17. It's a new majority Asian American district. The Democratic candidate was Yuan Chu. She was kind of widely expected to kind of coast, but it was an incredibly close race. Looks like the Democrat will will win by the narrowest of margins. But when I, I spoke to her a few weeks ago, I said, what is the biggest issue in your district? And she is, you know, a, a, a kind of a progressive darling. Everyone likes her. So the number one issue is crime. And Asian American communities in our district, whether it's crime or the perception of crime, whatever you want to call it, the number one thing on the minds of most people in my community is, is a feeling of being unsafe. And so, yes, we can chalk it up to the, the media, but whatever it is, that the perception is reality for a lot of these communities. And in particular, I just thought it was interesting, the Asian American community uh, in Sunset Park in Brooklyn. And, you know, we saw a lot of areas in Brooklyn go for Zeldin, uh, I think, on on that basis. So it's, it's going to be an ongoing issue that, uh, you know, I think Democrats are going to have to address eventually. I think you're right, Jamie. Absolutely. And the Republicans have done a very, um, uh, a very skillful job of connecting the, um, the crime issue uh, with the bail reform and putting the Democrats on the spot for bail reform and therefore blaming them for crime. Now, that may not be a, a true dot that you can connect. But the perception of it certainly is. And that's what's what's happening. And that's uh, cost, I think, some seats in Brooklyn to flip, uh, which were never expected to, to flip. And the two seats in the Senate side that were created as buffers to protect the supermajority, uh, you see one is up by 167 votes at this point with uh, um, not all the votes quite counted. So. Uh, it, it may have uh, backfired a little bit in terms of the original thinking. Nothing is safe. And that is, you know, the takeaway, right? I mean, the word for this, the, the independent redistricting and then the special master, we, we might have very different results today. So that is also something we need to, to, to think about, right? I mean, you know, some of the the analysis of congressional races as well. The special master actually did create a number of much more competitive congressional districts that probably would not have existed had it not been for, for how that all played out. So we do have to consider that, you know, as, as we, as we talk about the kind of trends here. Although I will, I will bet that uh, given the opportunity next time, either party 
would do what the Democrats did this time and try and draw the lines in a in, in a fashion that would uh, create more districts that are uh, are necessarily uh, perceived to be more favorable to their party. Right. But the problem was preceding that was an effort by the Democratic majority to essentially cede that legislative authority to the Independent Redistricting Commission, which was it was it was under that premise that the courts rejected those lines. So, you know, I will say originally it goes back to the Democrats using their power to give away their power, which is uh, what 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 they do sometimes. <laughs> so we'll we'll see what happens with that commission moving forward. And, and obviously we've got eight years. But yeah, we've got council races. Although the assembly lines are going to be redrawn next year. That's true. That's true. Right. It leads to a lot of voter confusion, right? And I think that the voters were paying attention to that. It was a little disillusioning to watch that happen, to see all of the various primaries that happened, you know, weeks, just weeks apart from each other. Very confusing for even informed voters. So then when the campaigns were rolling out, telling people it's not really dangerous. It's all a perception problem. I, I just think that was a, a misstep for the Democrats that may have cost them in the end. We'll be covering all of that as we watch Kathy get ready for her first term, right? And we see what of her priorities make it into the state of the state address and how it impacts the dynamic also between the city and the state going into yet another election cycle. It seems never ending. Right. Here we are. Yeah, and, we'll, and we'll see the impact on the council races also next year. Does exactly this right. force some of the council members to also um, maybe pivot to be more moderate? Um, you know, they're all uh, le- now less than a year away from their own reelections. Right, right. So, and, you know, there, there is a trend that's going on, and, 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 and there, there are counter trends going on. But one of the interesting things in this race, which will be interesting to see, what happens in future races is that the Democrats deployed a strategy of participating in in various ways in Republican primaries to try to um, get get nominated the most extreme candidates so that they would be, in their view, easier to defeat. I think it's a risky strategy because if those candidates win, you've really gotten bad people in bad places. And it, it's generally the candidates that are tied to Trump. And this may have blackened Trump's eye in terms of uh, the losses that he suffered nationally, including with Zeldin. And, but, but it is a, a, a strategy that was um, uh, perhaps successful in a number of gubernatorial and senatorial races. And it's almost as if some of the folks pushing candidates are more engaged in the game of politics than in the business of legislating. Right? Right. Hard to believe, but... <laughs> no, I, I definitely, you know, this is not an original thought, but there have been many people commenting that these elections are very good for political consultants and campaign managers, right? There's lots and lots of opportunity and maybe that's not going to change anytime soon. And very, very good for pundits who make all their predictions and then forget that they made them the day after the election and then try to explain what happened. So We'll be here untangling this as it unfolds. And it's an exciting time. I mean, there are, I think, you know, some great opportunities in New York. This will be a reset 
of sorts, not entirely, but, you know, I think it's been enough of a challenging election that everyone will give sort of a thought to what the voters have have sort of said with their votes and where the state should be headed in the context of the national landscape and the state landscape. So I want further thought for Katie Rose Jaden. I would think that the losers in this election may well have been former President Trump and former Governor Cuomo, because I'm not sure what lane there is in New York for him at this point. But maybe there, maybe you all see a lane. I don't right now. I think that's right. I mean, I think we, if you look, at, and not just in New York, right, but you take a national lens of all of the candidates. I mean, Trump endorsed was like 300 candidates or something like that in this election round, local and state and federal. I mean, it was, just by numbers alone was enormous, right? And that's not even counting the number of candidates who sought to align themselves with mm-hmm. Trump as a way to advance their campaign. I mean, he lost in some really significant races around the country. And um, and I think, interestingly, we saw folks like Zeldin and you know, Dr. Oz concede, right? They've lost. And I think that's really an important part of the democratic process and is um, the antithesis of Trump's approach to losing. And so I do think that not only are there individual losses that have maybe diminished his role as kingmaker, right? But I, I wonder, I hope that there is a shifting understanding of the importance of participating in the democratic process fully. And that means accepting that there are losers and that perhaps you may be one of them. Um, And that I think further disempowers him. Having said that, we're all waiting for his anticipated announcement about a potential presidential bid. So we may see how that creates a swell of support. But I don't think here in New York, in my, my special little perch here, I would profess to have a view of what every corner of the country is feeling. But I think at least in our corner of the country, we're, we're seeing that happen. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up for us for today. Thank you all for tuning in. And we look forward to sharing our thoughts moving forward. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.